Good afternoon and welcome back to Midday Magazine. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. A resolution to protect the Southeast Alaska troll fishery passed in the state legislature yesterday by a unanimous vote. House Joint Resolution 5 calls on state and federal governments to defend Alaska fisheries from a lawsuit filed by the Washington State-based environmental group, the Wild Fish Conservancy. The suit seeks to stop the Southeast troll fish fishery over what the conservancy sees as a threat to the southern resident killer whales in Puget Sound. The organization's position is that terminating Southeast King's salmon troll fishery might allow Chinook salmon to migrate back down the coast through key hunting grounds of the southern resident killer whales. The southern residents exclusively eat fish. They are also genetically, behaviorally, and even culturally distinct from other groups of killer whales. But the population has been in decline for decades, and now numbers in in the 70s. The resolution to support the troll fishery was introduced by freshman representative Rebecca Himshoot of Sitka, who sits on the House Special Committee on Fisheries. It received support across party lines in the Alaska Senate. Himshoot lauded the resolution's overwhelming bipartisan support in the latest vote. She said that she, quote, hopes the Wild Fish Conservancy reconsiders pushing this misguided lawsuit and instead starts addressing the factors impacting the southern resident killer whales in their own backyard. The Senate also heard from stakeholders from the troll fishery. Tim O'Connor is the mayor of Craig and a commercial troller. He said the closure of the fishery would, quote, devastate the troll fleet and have a significant economic impact on the region. Many local governments in southeast Alaska have passed resolutions opposing the lawsuit, including Petersburg, Wrangell, Gatchikan, Sitka, and Juneau. City officials in the Prince of Wales Wales Island town of Craig announced on Friday that residents no longer need to conserve water. According to the announcement from the city of Craig, there's now enough water in the city's storage tank to ease conservation measures. Those were put in place after a system failure earlier this month let dirt into the pipes and left some without water. The state says Craig Public Works crews will keep monitoring the water levels to make sure they're stable. If there's a significant drop, residents may need to conserve water again. Until last Friday, residents had been told to use as little water as possible while the tanks were refilling. On Monday, a judge in Bethel heard arguments about whether a citizen citizen lawsuit over state salmon management should be dismissed. The state of Alaska has moved to dismiss Eric Forer's case for failing to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Superior Court Judge Nathaniel Peters presided over the oral arguments that claim the state mismanaged Chinook and Chum Salmon in the Yukon and Kuskokwim Rivers. Representing the State Department of Fish and Game, is Assistant Attorney General Noah Starr and Senior Assistant Attorney General Aaron Peterson. Starr and Peterson attended the hearing via Zoom and spoke first. They requested a motion to dismiss the case based on four reasons. 
Starr argued that Forer failed to state a legal claim under the Alaska Constitution Sustained Yield Clause. Secondly, the case does not challenge a specific management decision by the Commissioner of Fish and Game. Third, Forer is not entitled to his requested relief because the department cannot act independently of the management plan adopted by the Board of Fisheries. And finally, Forer asks the court to second-guess fisheries management decisions. Representing Forer is his lawyer, Joseph Geldof. Both flew in from Juneau last Friday and appeared in courtroom 5, which had several community members in attendance. Geldof requested that Judge Peters not dismiss the case and hold the state accountable to manage its fisheries. After the state's rebuttal, Judge Peters closed the oral arguments and now will have six months to make a decision. A fishing vessel that overturned just outside of Asika Harbor this weekend was refloated early Monday morning. Around 1 p.m. on Saturday, the Coast Guard responded to a vessel that had capsized at the entrance to Crescent Harbor in downtown Sitka. Coast Guard Marine Science Technician Alyssa Helton was at the scene. Sorry, that is Alicia Helton. She said that all four passengers on the fishing vessel Ocean Cape managed to quickly get off the boat with the help of some good Samaritans. No injuries were reported. There were quite a few members of the community that were there on scene immediately after it happened, and they helped the crew get off the vessel and and make sure everything was okay. And throughout the response, we had lots of community members that came to the site to help out where they could. It was a really good show of small-town support. By the time the Coast Guard arrived, the crew of the Ocean Cape was already working with a local marine salvage operator. Helton says Hansen Maritime worked to secure the boat's fuel vents and contain spilled fuel and oil with floating blooms. The crews continued throughout the day to remove fuel from the stern tanks at low tide, and they were able to recover approximately 800 gallons of oil and oily water from the vessel between Saturday and Sunday. The boat was refloated early Monday morning and returned to its stall at Crescent Harbor with some damage to its hull that's still being assessed. The cause of the accident is still under investigation, but Helton said weather conditions likely played a role. Saturday was was pretty windy, and, and from what we've been told, it sounds like the wind played a pretty significant role in the vessel rolling over to its side. The Ocean Cape is owned by fisherman Chris Yusted, who also serves on the Sitka Assembly. In an email to KCAW, Yusted expressed his appreciation for everyone who offered assistance at the scene and with the salvage operation. It's been two months since a polar bear killed a woman and her one-year-old son in the small Bering Sea village of Wales. And questions still linger about what caused the bear to attack on their short walk from the school to the clinic. But more important for Wales and its neighboring communities is the question of how to move on from this tragedy. As Rhonda McBride found out, it's required a collective approach to healing and vast reserves of strength and kindness. The name for Wales in the Inupiat language is Kingigan, which means high place. The village, which sits beside a mountain, 
also hugs the beach. And in the winter, it's hard to tell where the shore ends and the sea ice begins. Ice that makes it possible for bears to hunt for seals and other animals that provide the high-energy food they need to survive in the Arctic. Susan Nesda, the chief administrator for the Bering Strait School District, says it can be an unforgiving land. Tough things happen, and life in general is a little more difficult. And this winter, even more so. The last polar bear attack in Alaska was in Point Lay 30 years ago. So this is unfamiliar territory and hard to see the way forward, just as it was on the day of the attack when windstorms whipped up whiteout conditions and gave the bear a veil of invisibility to prowl about unnoticed until it struck. Nesda, who manages the school district from Unalakleet, a community more than 200 air miles away, heard about the attack over the phone as it happened. She was told that some staffers and other community members had risked their own lives trying to save Summer Myomic and her son, Clyde Onktawasrak. So they were hitting the bear with shovels. And the bear can be seen on camera leaving that attack and chasing those people up onto the school porch stairs into the front entryway, and the principal managed to close the door. Staffers shut the blinds so the children couldn't see, but that didn't stop them from experiencing the trauma. Each person responds to a crisis differently. You're fine one minute, you're not the next. In this constantly shifting emotional landscape, Nesda says her staff and their 30 students have to be allowed to heal on their own timetable, a process which requires tenderness and patience. Some students are really struggling. They're just really, really struggling hard. Parents are now asked to escort their children to and from school. There are extra safety patrols around the building, and initially a shortened school day with a focus on emotional well-being followed by a gradual transition back to academics. But parents do have the option to keep their kids home, depending on bear sightings or how they're feeling that day. The school now has a snow machine to give teachers rides, and a fence is going up under the shop, an area that gave the bear cover before it emerged from under the building. We're gradually getting back to a little more normalized day. It's taken a lot of hard work to get to this point. The King of Mute School in Wales doesn't usually have a full-time counselor. They rotate between the district's 15 communities. But since the attack, the district has made sure that Wales has always had one on hand. The community has also taken some practical steps to move beyond the bear. Volunteers are regularly on patrol to watch for the Nanut, the Inupiaq word for polar bears. Michael Oxerock, the Wales representative on the Alaska Nanut Co-Management Council, says the council is working with other organizations to bring back regular patrols. With a warming climate and less sea ice, Oxerock believes more human bear encounters are inevitable. With the sea ice receding as much as it has, bears aren't able to go and hunt as well as they used to 15 years ago. Scientists say it's hard to know how much the sea ice was a factor in the attack. It was locked in place when the bear struck. But Oxerock says the water didn't begin to freeze until December. It finally formed maybe two or three inches mid-January. That's very late for 
the area wolves. The bears need the ice to hunt for their prey. But Dave Gustine, the polar bear manager for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Anchorage, says the ice is just one part of a mystery that was hard for investigators to probe. We kind of had to tread lightly, and one thing we landed on, we made sure by deferring to the community and the family's needs and requests any chance we could. After a community member shot and killed the bear, which was a male, investigators took samples from the skull. Tests didn't find any signs of avian flu, rabies, or other pathogens that could affect a bear's behavior. Recent results for tests on a tooth put the bear's age at about 17. 15 is considered old for a male. Gustine says this may answer questions about why the bear was in poor condition. Were your meals frequent enough to either A, put on extra energy reserves, or B, have to dip into those reserves? And so this, this bear was in a place where there wasn't any fat on, on his body. Gustine says the bear had less body fat than is typical for this time of the year, and its age could have contributed to a rapid decline in its ability to survive. But other than the bear's age and condition, Gustine says there's not enough information to know for sure what caused the attack. Studies show that polar bears in the Chukchi Sea area are overall in good health. And until now, polar bears have not really been a problem in Wales, which once had a patrol but lost its funding. Lindsay Manjapane, a biologist in Fish and Wildlife's polar bear program, says the money went elsewhere. We have some communities that have over 100 calls every year of bears that are in town. So that requires a lot of resources. So that, that kind of took the majority of our funding. But we do have some some great partners now that might potentially have some funding to help out with these other communities. And it's definitely a priority for us to try to make that happen. But for now, the community takes comfort in seeing snow machine lights off in the distance as volunteers take turns on patrol, pulling together to do the best they can to emerge from a dark and difficult time. A GoFundMe page to help the family cover the costs of mourning their loss far exceeds the fundraising goal. There are pictures of Summer Myomic and her son, Clyde Onktawasrook III, who glowed with a full-face look of a well-loved child, as well as photos of Summer's three-year-old daughter, who must now grow up without her mom. One of the fundraisers wrote that Summer was kind and loved by everyone, described as a mother who was incredibly proud of her two young babies. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. Governor Mike Dunleavy has nominated an executive at Coastal Villages Region Fund as his top choice to serve on the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council. Ryuchi Rudy Tsukata is the chief operating officer at Coastal Villages. That's one of six Western Alaska nonprofits that own catch shares in the Bering Sea fisheries, though the community development quota pro- through the community development quota program. Tsukata's employer also owns a Bering Sea factory trawler. The nomination, if approved by US Sec- uh, the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, would continue the tradition of seating members on the North Pacific Council with roots in the Pollock industry. The selection disappointed subsistence advocates and small boat fishermen who are calling for more diversity on the council. 
Dunleavy, in his nomination letter, said the state makes an effort to seek out women, people of color, and people from historically underrepresented communities. He said Sukata is known in sport fishing circles in south central Alaska for helping to popularize kayak angling, fishing for halibut and salmon from a kayak. The Magnuson-Stevens Act requires the governor to nominate a preferred candidate as well as two alternate nominees. Dunlady proposed two directors from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game as alternates.